The following content of this episode contains explicit language, violence, sexual assault of a minor, and murder. This episode may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of Wild Shit with Kai. I'm your host, Kai. Finally, I'm back. If you're new here, this podcast is essentially me retelling stories about true crime cases, super weird history facts, and bizarre world events and or phenomenons. Through my research, hopefully the topics will pique your interest as much as it did for me. So before I fully get into the topic of today, I just wanted to correct a statement I made in the last episode, Raising Spirits or Suspicions, about Robert Butch DeFeo Jr. I realized after releasing the episode that he had passed away earlier this year. He passed away at the age of 69 at the Albany Medical Center. A cause of death has not yet been announced, but will be determined by the Albany County Coroner eventually. I just wanted to correct myself since I do strive to do thorough research, and this was a bit of an oversight on my part, and I'm sorry for that. So now that I've cleared that up, let's get back to today's episode. Today, I'll be talking about something a little bit different. I'll be talking about an unsolved case. Not only is it unsolved, but it's also a case that happened right here in Montreal, more specifically in the borough of Point St. Charles. When I first heard about this case, it was one from an earlier episode of a great Canadian podcast called Dark Puts In with Mike Brown as the host. It's the one show where I don't cringe when they say the word puts in. No, it's not like Putin, like Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. No, no. It's not Putin either. Say Putin Get it right. Putin. Anyway, it's an incredible podcast that you should listen to if you want to hear more about Canadian true crime and dark history. After listening to that episode, I had a conversation with my mom where I brought up the case of Sharon Pryor and how wild it was. My mom recalled how scary it was that she was only six years younger than Sharon. So Sharon was 16 when this happened and my mom would have been 10. Mental math. And eerily, the photo of Sharon I used and posted on Instagram slightly resembles a photo of my mom from the 70s. Though I don't know anyone from Sharon Pryor's family, I wasn't even a twinkle in my parents' eyes at that point, I feel like this case hits way too close to home. It makes you think twice about how anything can happen anywhere at any given time and you can't do anything about it. I'll be honest, as a person who loves true crime for a multitude of reasons, unsolved cases are usually my least favorite to listen to, look up, or anything to an extent. 
hold on, before you get ahead of yourself, let me explain why. Unsolved cases, including disappearances, murders, kidnappings, they kind of rub me the wrong way. Why? Because there's usually no true closure or resolution. The longer it goes on without any new leads or evidence, how long will it be until we potentially have the technology to maybe, and hopefully, bring justice to the family or even the bare minimum level of comfort knowing what occurred and who is responsible. It may not be within the victim's loved one's lifetime, and that irks me to my core. The other reason is the constant anticipation of wanting to know and understand what no one can figure out. Being on the brink of losing all hope or yearning for that one day, you'll maybe get the answers you've been longingly waiting for. I just feel like cases like this are sometimes even more devastating and upsetting. I'm wondering how you guys feel about unsolved cases or mysteries. Let me know via Instagram, Twitter, or even by email. I would love to hear and see different opinions and perspectives. So if you're ready, then let's go. It's going to be a wild fucking ride. Let's try and rewind to a time with bell bottoms and the rise of disco. But it was also an era of economic struggle, cultural change, and technological innovation. The late 1970s were not an easy time to be a teenage girl or young woman in Quebec, let alone being a woman anywhere, if we're being honest. Month after month, more women and girls were reported missing and then found dead. Montreal, the second most populous city in Canada and the most populous city in the Canadian province of Quebec, the place where I call home. This was also home to Sharon Pryor, a 16-year-old girl whose life was cut too short by the hands of a true monster. Before I get into the details of the crime, I just want to take a step back and allow you guys, the listener, to hear what her life was like and that she should not only be defined by what happened to her. Sharon's mother, Yvonne, was born in England, but moved with her family to Montreal when she was nine. They settled in Point St. Charles, or The Point, as locals sometimes call it, a neighborhood on the southwest side. The Point was one of Montreal's oldest neighborhoods with roots in the Industrial Revolution. Working-class Irish, English, and Scottish immigrants took over that borough in the 20th century. Here's some local history to try and give a little more of a visual for those non-Montrealers. In the 1960s, the borough went into a decline, caused by the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway and sealed by the closure of the Lachine Canal. The decline was further impacted by the construction of the Bonaventure Auto Route. Despite these difficult times, 
the neighborhood reacted by banding together in social solidarity. For example, the Clinique Communautaire de Pointe-Saint-Charles was founded in 1968 to offer health and social services to residents, which in turn would inspire the Centre Local de Services Communautaires, aka the CLSC model that is now used throughout the province, while remaining an independent clinic with the mandate of the CLSC. In plain English, the CLSC is the local community service center. In the 1970s, there was a big boom in social housing developments, and to this day, approximately 40% of the housing stock in the point is social housing. Despite the socioeconomic tribulations the borough has faced, they have undergone gentrification. If you're not sure what that is, it's the process of changing the character of a neighborhood by adding more affluent residents and businesses. The purpose is for the increase of economic value, but in turn, it becomes a major social issue. Fun fact that I didn't even know about because this happened when I was still in elementary school, the Point's tradition of social solidarity continued. The residents of the neighborhood in 2005 to 2006 successfully opposed a project to move the Montreal Casino to the area. The fact that they were able to oppose the relocation of Canada's largest casino, these people got some chutzpah, I'm telling you. Thank you for coming to my history lesson, but now let's get back to the story. Yvonne was living in the point when she met her husband, a private in the Canadian Army, in 1959. The young couple had their first child, Sharon. On the day before Sharon's second birthday, the twins Maureen and Doreen arrived. From Yvonne's accounts, Sharon was thrilled. She thought that they were her birthday present, Yvonne remembers. In 1962, the army transferred Yvonne's husband to Manitoba. There, the couple had another child, a son named George, whom the family called Jojo. But by 1965, the marriage had fallen apart and Yvonne moved back to the point with her children. The point was the kind of neighborhood that doesn't exist much anymore. Single mothers like Yvonne could rent there for cheap, knowing their kids would grow up in a tight-knit community centered on Sunday school and sports. Big families spilled out of tiny row houses. The people were tough. They didn't have a lot, but there was also very little crime. Alice de Sterler's research website, Defrosting Cold Cases, everyone who was quoted in the papers described Sharon as a reliable, friendly, cautious girl who stayed out of trouble. She was sportive, well-behaved, and athletic. She loved animals and would take in strays, even tending to them and nursing them back to health. According to her twin sisters, Doreen and Maureen, Sharon wanted to become a vet. Side note, I've always had such 
admiration and respect for vets to want to help out animals to that extent. I feel it takes a very loving and special person to do that. For Sharon, who was a bit shy by nature, the best thing about living in the point was that the Boys and Girls Club was right down the street. She joined the floor hockey league and took arts and crafts classes. She spent afternoons playing ping pong, and it wasn't long before she had a tight circle of friends. With her having so many friends, I remember how important it was to be able to go and hang out with your inner circle at that age. It was, I think, the most vital part of being a teenager. It's said that Sharon's mother, Yvonne, stated that Sharon would go out Saturday nights, but was usually back home by 11 p.m. or at the latest 1 a.m. Sharon always called home if she thought she was going to be late. So clearly, Yvonne trusted Sharon a lot. She seemed to be a really sweet, caring, responsible, sociable girl who had a good head on her shoulders. She literally sounds like a parent's dream. After a long week at school, Saturday, March 29th, 1975, rolls around and everyone is preparing for Easter. That morning, Sharon woke up. She did her regular morning routine, like getting washed up, dressed, making her bed, that whole shebang. Yvonne had gone shopping to get whatever they were missing for Easter dinner, including chocolate eggs and other goodies. You can't celebrate Easter without chocolate. Notably, Sharon's brother, Jojo, and her foster brother, Stephen, still loved searching for eggs. Supposedly, the twin sisters, Maureen and Doreen, they felt they were too old for that kind of stuff. Typical teenagers, am I right? Regardless of what her twin sisters thought, she decided to make and paint some Easter eggs at around 1 p.m. Two hours later, at 3 p.m., Yvonne had come home and had sat at the kitchen table and watched Sharon paint the eggs. Yvonne gave some tricks and tips to ensure Sharon's Easter eggs were the absolute bomb. Spring was Yvonne's absolute favorite season. The weather, the blooming flowers, birds singing, children playing outside, and that spring fever. She said that she got that funny, tingly feeling where you feel great to be alive, and Sharon felt the very same way. 45 minutes later, at 3.45 p.m., half of the Easter eggs were painted, and Sharon needed to go to the Boys and Girls Club to pick up Leo's boy's jacket. Sharon had saved up money by selling a book of raffle tickets. Sharon asked her mom if she can bring Stephen with her, and Yvonne said yes, and off they went. When Sharon and Stephen got to the club, they didn't have her size available, but they gave Sharon a receipt so she can swing by another day to pick it up. Because they didn't have her size available, Sharon was even considering ordering a smaller size so that her foster brother Stephen could have a jacket since he didn't have a coat that fit him properly. Ugh. 
What a sweet angel. My goodness. True heart of gold. After Sharon had gone to the Boys and Girls Club, she came home and continued painting the eggs. At around 4.30 p.m., the Reverend came to the house to pay a visit just to say hello and wish the family a happy Easter. Honestly, sometimes I forget that Easter is a religious holiday. Growing up not practicing any religion, I always understood it as you just get a shitload of sweets and treats and there's a random ass bunny that hides eggs for children to find. But what does a bunny, eggs, and chocolate have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? I don't know. But maybe that question will be answered in a future episode if any of you are interested. But let's get back to the story at hand. The Reverend seemed like a super nice guy, according to the family. He had brought them a giant box of turtles chocolate, and they sat around the table while Sharon was back at painting the remaining eggs. The Reverend was with the family for about 45 minutes before he headed out. I guess he knew it was his time to go, as it was nearing supper time. After supper, between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m., Sharon's best friend came over to the house. They've known each other since they were five years old. I have a couple of friends like that. It's nice to have friends from that long ago. Even though they've been friends for a long time, her best friend didn't hang out with Sharon's other group of friends. It's speculated that it's because they went to different high schools. I get that. There are some people in my life that I had lost touch with simply because I changed schools in my youth. But now with all the tools we have for communicating, now we can all just choose to ignore each other on purpose. I'm kidding. But don't lie. Everyone does it, whether you'd like to admit it or not. Despite them not going to the same school, they had a great relationship. Sharon mentioned that she was getting ready to head out to meet up with her other friends at Marina's Pizzeria that was right on the corner of Wellington and Ash Avenue. I looked it up and it seems like the pizzeria is no longer in business according to Google Maps, but it does look like it's now a Jamaican restaurant and right by it there's also a Family Pre, which is a local pharmacy chain here in Quebec and some other small businesses. But like all of us, we all have specific places that were our hangouts and or meetup places. Some places are grimier than we would like to admit, but it's like our hometown's little gems. So it seems like Marina's Pizzeria was that little gem to Sharon and her friends. On Sharon's website, it stated that she was worried about her outfit, constantly changing shirts, and then was anxious about wearing her suede jacket because it started to rain. I can't even tell you how much I relate to that struggle of just finding an outfit to go out, even to go get fucking groceries, but even more so when I'm going to hang out with my friends. 
That's why I take forever to get ready. I'm just so indecisive. At around 7, 10 p.m., Sharon finally decided on her outfit. On her way out the door, she said bye to her mom, and Yvonne said, as most moms do, goodbye, Sharon, be careful. Sharon's girlfriend was already out the door, standing on the sidewalk. She offered to walk Sharon to the restaurant, but Sharon said no, but thanked her anyway. After that exchange, Sharon was off and unfortunately never made it to the restaurant. Meanwhile, at Marina's, there was some tea to spill. Sharon's friends noticed that there was some police commotion across the street. What was going on, you may wonder? Well, there was a 23-year-old woman, Cheryl Roy, that had been grabbed up by a man with a knife. Luckily, the woman was able to fend him off with the help of a group of kids that were nearby. The assailant was described as around six feet tall and easily 200 pounds. He had a mustache, squared at the corners, cuffed jeans, a dark blue ski jacket, and black shoes with pointed toes. This fucking scumbag held on to Cheryl's head. He also threw her against a brick wall, then dragged her by the hair while making threats. Luckily, the group of kids, including a 12-year-old boy, intervened. The piece-of-shit man jumped, presumably startled, and took off through the alleyway northbound. Naturally, one of Sharon's peers, who were already at Marina's, posed the question, Where's Sharon? They all concluded that she must have met up with her boyfriend, John McAleer, and then gone to his hockey game. Side note, we must remember, the 70s was a time long before cell phones were even a normalized concept and common tool of technology. Yeah, there were payphones, but who knows how many there were in that area. So let's not get that shit twisted. But when Sharon didn't come home that night, understandably, Yvonne began to worry. According to Yvonne, Sharon always called if she was going to be late. Yvonne started to reach out to Sharon's friends to see what was going on, as any concerned parent would do. When the friends told her that Sharon and John never showed up at Marina's, Yvonne began to panic. Adding on to the anxiety of not knowing where your child is, the friend told Yvonne, I don't mean to worry you, but there was a woman attacked on Ash Avenue at around 7 p.m. It's noted that this creep fled north through the alleyway. And depending on the route that Sharon took to get to Marina's, she could have walked right into him. One agonizing day turned into two. Like mentioned earlier, the point was a very close-knit community, and events like this didn't happen. There were around 100 adults and children that took to the streets to assist in the search of Sharon. Yvonne went on television and pleaded for her daughter's safe return. Three days later, it's April 1st, 1975. There were no jokes on this day. 
just complete devastation. I would like to warn listeners that the following details are especially violent since Sharon was merely a child and the subject matter may make you feel uncomfortable and or upset. Sharon's body was found in a snowy field at Chemin du Lac and Guimont Boulevard in the city of Longueuil, situated on the south shore of the St. Lawrence River, directly across from Montreal, around 25 minutes away from Point St. Charles. She was found by a beekeeper, Jacques Bertrand. On the property, Bertrand kept bees there and was informed by someone to go check the lock on the gate because they had noticed it was open. This is important to know. The beekeeper usually keeps the gates locked because other people would like to use Bertrand's land as a dumping ground. The first investigators on the scene were Jean Bré and Guy Allery, along with Constable J. Leo Gagnon. The other investigators that worked on this case were Pierre Lambert, Louis Lasseur, Raymond Trottier, Pierre Robida, and Pierre Robido. The Longueuil police officers that would continue the investigations into the next decade were Renaud Lacombe, Pierre Robidou, and Jacques de Trissac. The scene was upsetting. It was shown that Sharon had been badly beaten. Her face was bruised and her skull fractured. She also had choke marks around her neck and it was evident that she had choked on her blood. Her nose was broken and her chest was crushed. The police concluded that her chest was crushed by the assailant's knee. She was found wearing her suede coat, sweater, shoes, and socks. Her pants were approximately six feet away from her body. Her underwear was hanging from a tree and she also had a branch clutched in her hand. There was blood and branches in her hair. A man's shirt was also found at the scene. The detectives concluded that this was used to bind her. A receipt was found at the scene with Sharon's name on it. A tire mark was observed along with the footprint of a man thought to have weighed about 200 pounds. This sounds familiar, right? It was concluded that the loose items were thrown from the window of a vehicle, like an afterthought. The autopsy was performed by Jean Hould. Both officers, Renaud Lacombe and Jacques de Trissac, were present at the autopsy. Among other things, the autopsy concluded that Sharon Pryor had been raped, the blows to her head were most likely caused by a pointed instrument, maybe even a ring. A partially chewed tape found in her hair 
meant that Pryor was most likely gagged. Sharon most likely died Tuesday afternoon, which would mean she was held captive from Saturday evening through Tuesday morning. Again, this is solely my opinion and observation based on the research available for this case. I believe that Sharon fought so hard, but unfortunately with all of the abuse and with her strength diminished after being in her assailant's clutches for days, this monster was able to overpower and end her short life. Early on in the investigation, the police were honing in on Frank Daly, aka Jerry Moore, as a suspect. Dolly managed Marina's pizzeria. I tried to get more research on this Jerry Moore, aka Frank Dolly character, but nothing was super conclusive, except that in an article posted by North Info, a local paper for residents in Blainville and Saint Therese, it stated that Frank Daly was a pimp who exploited young girls to human trafficking. And I can't say how much truth there is to this statement because it was the only bit that I found stating this claim. Even though his name came up during the early start of the investigation, Dolly had finally been released for lack of evidence. Others that were interviewed concerning Dolly were Ronnie McGuire, Richard Kassev, May Ann, and Dolores Boucher. The owners of Marina's, Nick and Marina Chionidis, Claude Laporte, John Beaubien, Audrey Payne, Anne Benoit, Caroline Smith, and Harold Regan. Police also interviewed the co-owners of the Longueuil property, Jacques Bertrand and Roger Augry, as well as Raymond Amont, who owned the adjacent property. Police interviewed Pryor's boyfriend, John Michelier, as well as friends Brian Victor Morneau, Margaret Neal, Laurie Derrick, and Debbie Côté. Their initial police suspects included Daniel de Courval, Gérard Jebinville, Laurie Kenneth, and Norma Hunt. Or it could be Norman Hunt. Not sure if they're Anglophone or Francophone. The police agents that were present during the interviews included André Charette, Bertrand Audet, Jacques Saint-Marc of the SPCUM, Agent Fauché of the SCU St. Hyacinth, and Sergeant Detective Tetro of Laval. At first, this case seemed solvable. The police had the shirt, car cushion, tire track, footprint, and even the killer's DNA. Sharon's mother, Yvonne, remembers that the police questioned 36 people, and there were three or four of them that got their attention. But now I just want to circle back to something. 
The young woman, Cheryl Roy, who was attacked on the street around the same time that Sharon disappeared, picked a man out of a lineup, but the police had to let him go because she said that she wasn't 100% sure if it were him or not. I know the police were going by their protocol, but I didn't see anything mentioned about the group of boys being eligible witnesses. Would you not think that if they helped Cheryl fend this creep off, wouldn't they want their insight on this information? Then again, if they're minors, maybe the group of boys, um, their parents didn't want to put them through all that. And I would like to think that if something crazy happened in your neighborhood, especially if you were a firsthand witness, that you would do everything in your power to try and help. But hey, again, like I said, they were minors and we can't force people to do what they may not want to do. Up to this point, these are the factors surrounding Sharon Pryor's case. About half an hour before Sharon Pryor left her home on March 29, 1975, Cheryl Roy was attacked in Point St. Charles, very close to where Sharon lived, by a man yielding a knife. The suspect has been come to known as the Mustached Man. He was white, Anglophone, six feet tall, and around 200 pounds with a mustache. The incident occurred on Wellington Street, the very same street as Marina's Pizzeria. In 2004, police received a tip that Sharon Pryor may have been held captive at a garage space at 2107 Rue Favard, one block south of Marina's Pizzeria. Police tested the site for DNA, but the results were inconclusive. Sharon's blood was not identified. Yvonne Pryor stated on April 3, 2016, that this later turned out to be a bogus tip. Hindering results on the above point is the fact that the original evidence in the prior case was destroyed by Longueuil police. This has been confirmed by the family of Sharon Pryor. Destroyed. You heard me right. The evidence was destroyed. You may be asking why? And so am I. Let's see how this came about. From CBC News article from April 2016, titled Quebec Cold Cases, Families of Eight Dead Women Call for Public Inquiry, goes on about a documentary filmmaker, Stéphane Perrand, looking into unsolved deaths of women, girls from the 1970s, 80s, and discovers many stones unturned. The relatives of eight women who suffered violent deaths in the 1970s and early 1980s are calling on Quebec Public Security Minister to call a public inquiry into policing methods in the province. For decades, those families, including Sharon's, have honored the memory of their lost sisters and daughters, waiting for a call from the police to confirm an arrest and, in some cases, 
even becoming detectives themselves. I don't blame them. Not that I would necessarily want to get in the way of police, you know, doing their jobs. But if it were my child or a family member, you best believe I'm going to be Inspector Kai. I'm going to try and solve this case. With Stéphane Perrin's interest in these cases, their hope has been restored. The documentary in the making is titled Cette Femme. In English, for non-French speakers, it simply translates to seven women. Perrin stated that they found that much evidence from these cases was destroyed by the police. Perrin noticed that during this era, there was a pattern with how cold cases were dealt with, destroyed evidence, relatives' calls going unanswered, and police forces failing to communicate with one another. So basically, due to them seemingly not giving a fuck, we're left with these unanswered questions. I can't point fingers, but it seems to me that Sharon's family is primarily Anglophone, and with the ever-going language war that we have here in Quebec, maybe that could have been a factor as well. For those that aren't aware, Quebec pretty much despises everything Anglophone, and even our current mayor is against making Montreal officially bilingual, which to me is fucking ridiculous because even Francophones are going to English schools. Why do you think that is? It's because they want to know more than one fucking language. Duh. Anyway, so the fact that it's still going on, this language war, let's envision almost 50 years ago when everything from racism, sexism, ageism, and concerns about violence against women were not taken as seriously as they are today. Parent contacted former Liberal Justice Minister Marc Balmer to help the families build a case for an inquiry. It was shown that each month, more girls and women were reported missing and then found dead. Apart from Sharon Pryor, here are some of the other victims of similarly heinous crimes. In Chattagui, two teenage girls were found killed. 12-year-old Norma O'Brien in July 1974 and 14-year-old Debbie Fisher in June 1975. A young man, a minor, confesses to the killings though his name and details are still cloaked in mystery. You know, I was trying to figure out who it was because maybe they're related to Sharon Pryor's case, but like I said, for whatever the fuck reason, Quebec still has this guy's name under wraps because he was 17, I believe. So, you know. That, that sucks. In Sherbrooke, March 1977, 20-year-old Louise Camiran was found in the snow 11 days after stopping at a convenience store to buy milk and cigarettes. Her killer has never been found. 
In Lennoxville, November 1978, 19-year-old Teresa Allure disappeared from the campus of Champlain College only to be found at the edge of the Cody Cook River five months later. Police ruled her death suspicious. Uh, you think? And finally, again in Point St. Charles, March 1981, 12-year-old Tammy Leakey had been visiting her grandmother in the point, disappeared just blocks from where Sharon went missing. Tammy's mother found her glasses on the sidewalk and called the police. Later that evening, a man discovered Tammy's body in a deserted area 25 minutes away. She'd been strangled, stabbed, and raped. Tammy's case also remains unsolved. So, with all these crimes having some similarities, I'm sure I'm not the only one who questions, could this have been the work of a serial killer? Who were they? Was it one assailant or multiple perpetrators? John Allure, a relative of Teresa Allure, one of the people asking for a public inquiry, said that, I think Quebec in that era was a very violent place. People got away with a lot more. In today's world, with cell phones and all this technology, cameras everywhere, it's not as easy to get away with these kinds of behaviors. John continues by saying that there has been a change in attitudes. Certainly in the 1970s, rape and sexual assault were not taken as seriously than as they are today. He said blaming the victim was the norm, which... Again, it still happens today, but I do see his point where even back then it was even more rampant and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. A woman is found with a rope, a ligature around her neck, and the police would have said that it could have been a suicide. A young girl is found in an abandoned field and they would have said that it was a hit and run. And John's direct example with his sister, Teresa Allure, she was found in her bra and underwear in a stream, and they probably would have said it was a drug overdose. And if you come to think of it, it's so true how now with the technology that we have, it's way easier and a lot better to get news across so fast. Like, there was no child find, Amber Alert, poster campaigns. Everything was spread by the paper and the radio. But with the internet, social media, posts, like, as soon as you post something online, it gets distributed exponentially fast. It's kind of mind-blowing. And if only cases like Sharon's and Teresa Lohr's and all the other victims that I've mentioned in this episode had more recognition, and if the police did their jobs, you know, I think we would have answers a lot sooner. Looking at Canada's statistics, research shows that there were a total of 430 homicides 
in Quebec between the years 1975 and 1976. Now let's compare. In 2019 and 2020, there was a total of 164 homicides in the province. That's a 61.8% decrease. That's fucking insane. It's clear that in the 1970s, criminals were getting away with rape and even murder. And this is strongly due to police forces at the time working in isolation and they failed to identify the patterns between each case. If there was a serial killer on the loose in the greater Montreal area, as some of the relatives of the dead women and girls believe, the police didn't figure it out or they didn't share their suspicions with any of the victims' families. I mentioned earlier that there was a public inquiry from the families of the victims. It was a letter to the public security minister focusing on eight cases, including Sharon Pryors, Louise Camerand, Joanne Dorion, Hélène Monat, Denise Bazinet, Lison Blais, Teresa Allure, and Roxane Luce. In it, the families asked for the following changes that all murders and disappearances anywhere in the province to be investigated solely by the Sûreté du Québec, that a protocol is established to make sure all evidence and information are held in a centralized place, that police officers are to undergo specialized training and are paid for this specialized training, The families of victims are kept systematically informed about the evolution of any investigation. And lastly, families of the victims accompanied by their lawyers have access to complete dossiers of investigations if the crime is still not solved after 25 years. A spokesperson for the Ministry of Public Security says officials are well aware of the difficult situation that relatives of missing and murdered people have to go through. Do they really understand? The ministry says they have received the letter asking for a public inquiry and that the demand is currently being analyzed. As of now, I haven't seen anything concrete indicating whether these changes have been made or not. Hopefully there will be some updates about this inquiry sooner than later. According to the National Post's 2012 article, Mother Hunts a Killer, for 37 years Yvonne Pryor has pursued her daughter's murderer. Yvonne stated that she wishes the police could share the evidence they have from her daughter's case. She said that she might see or pick up on something, even after all these years, might have missed or overlooked during the early years of the investigation. Although throughout the investigation, more than 70 potential suspects have been looked at by the police, but nothing has ever led to an arrest. 
well, maybe if they didn't destroy evidence, had better standards of preservation of said evidence, we would have answers for the prior family, as well as the other families that have lost their loved ones. I can't even begin to imagine what all these people have gone through emotionally. It's a pain that I would never wish upon someone. With Yvonne's devotion to finding her daughter's murderer, Yvonne recalled a lady who said to her, you know you have other children. First off, who the fuck is this lady? Because she needs to chill. And how is it any of her business how much time Yvonne spends on getting justice for her daughter? Like, hello? Yvonne continues, but each of your children are special. All children are special. And my contact with these other families, the bond that we share as parents of these missing and murdered children is that we help to keep a spotlight on each other's cases. Just with that excerpt, we can see what kind of person Yvonne is. Caring, driven, and a force of strength. In ways, I guess Yvonne kind of reminds me of my own mom. Based on the photos of Sharon, like I mentioned way earlier in the episode, she looks so similar to my mom when my mom was that age, so maybe that's why this case hit me a bit harder. Though this tragedy didn't happen in my lifetime, it happened in my parents' youth, and that still makes it a bit too close to home for my liking. This case truly breaks my heart, and the fact that there are so many cases that I haven't even heard of that happened around the same time with similar MOs are still unsolved to this day. This is another reason why I wanted to cover this story to the best of my abilities. Being a part of this true crime community, we can't allow these stories to go unheard. For those listening, if you were in Montreal during the 1970s, if you have any details about Sharon Pryor's case, on Sharon's website, it entails all the details of who to contact. There's also an award of $10,000 that has been extended and is still current. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can contact Infocrime Montréal, aka Crime Stoppers, at www.infocrimemontreal.ca or you can call them at 514-393-1100. You can also get in contact with the Quebec Provincial Police at www.sq.gov.qc.ca. This is where you can get through to them by phone, the post, or even by email submitting a form to report a crime. As for the families I've mentioned in this episode, And for anyone who has lost their loved ones, especially where the crime is still unsolved, my heart goes out to you, and I am wishing and hoping that there will be answers that you have long been waiting for. And with that, I thank you for listening to this episode. 
I know that was a lot of information, no true resolution, but I hoped you enjoyed listening and learning about this case as much as I did retelling it to you. If you can please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you're listening, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Google Podcasts, I would really appreciate it. If you want to leave any topic suggestions for future episodes, you can always email me at wswkpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to stay up to date on future episodes, you can follow me on Instagram at Twitter at wswkpodcast. I'll leave all this information in the show notes for you guys. So stay tuned for what's coming up next. As usual, it's going to be a wild fucking ride. Bye-bye.